Welcome to the Apex Podcast, guys. Today we got Karina Holden, award winner, producer, director, writer for award-winning films such as Blue, Great Barry Reef, The Next Generation, and After the Wildfires. Karina, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Oh, it's a pleasure. I'm great, grateful to be here, Alex. So we touched on this just before I press the record button, um, but my question was going to be, what comes first for a wildlife documentarian? Did your love for nature and science come first or your love for filmmaking? And then what did you work on uh, afterwards? It's a really good question. I, look, I, um, I, I actually always wanted to work in, in film and television and creative fields and storytelling um, but when I uh, went to university, I decided to focus on science because I thought it was a really interesting way into the creative fields because it would give me a specialty and um, make me uh, stand out, be unique in the genres that I could work in. Um, and then once I started doing conservation science at university, I loved it so much. I actually didn't think I'd leave. I loved running around the country chasing snakes and did lots of work with um, reptiles and um, and the field work was brilliant and when I had the chance to work on my first natural history film as a researcher when someone contacted me who was making films actually on the species I was studying it was a it was a transition of taking that skills of, of research and and field experience into natural history filmmaking that felt like a really good crossover and then reignited my ability to work in the creative fields again and and actually align those two things that I kind of dreamed about being able to do um, both sides from a very young age being able to see that all come together. So were you able to utilize filmmaking as um, I guess it's very similar to a scientific approach when you're monitoring a species say a lizard you'd be recording them via video. So was it a natural progression after that or did it take some getting used to? I think when you're, when you're making natural history films, you're part of a big team. And so my entry into the world of filmmaking was as a scientific researcher, someone who would know, okay, if we're going to be filming a story, how do we approach it? Where do we film it? Let's look at the seasonality, speak to all the scientists, get all of the language from all of the you know, the experts bring it together in a way that can translate into the practicalities of being in the field because um, in natural history, because it's such a, a an expert genre where you have cinematographers that specialise even just on individual, you know, somebody does birds, somebody does underwater, somebody does night, somebody does, um, you know, mammals. And so everybody is specialised in what they do. There was no way for me to step in and be, a natural history director, filmmaker, DOP from the very beginning, it was to work from the bottom up, basically supporting the the teams of directors and cinematographers to create those stories and thinking about when you make natural history films, you're not just filming animals, you're telling stories. So what are those unique behaviours? What can you watch unfold on screen between animals or within an animal community that can help tell that story of that environment. And so understanding the science and the animals and then thinking about it in storytelling, that's where I kind of grew my craft from. Mm. So that art of storytelling, it in, in my opinion, I think it'd be a little bit trickier than, say, a narrative project 
opposed to a, a fact-based documentary. Um, being a scientific communicator, it's not easy as in you got such complex ideas and terms, um, theories. How is it sort of translating those complexities into, for lack of a better word, a layman's term for such a general audience? I guess the, the thing is that I, 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 the most important thing in creating in creating stories is really thinking about the emotion as opposed to the information. And I think that when you are someone who's out there wanting to find facts or understand the statistics, you can find all of that very quickly. You know, go to Mr. Google, type it in, find it out. And so much more and more and more the um, the process of making natural history films is really to engage and create emotion and feelings. And so to me it's not all about, okay, we, it, do we need to understand the, the peptide chemical composition of whatever in this film? No, we don't need to do that. We need to take the audiences on a journey where they feel something deeply and they feel connected to it because I'm a big believer that, um, too much information in films can um, isolate audiences and they feel like they're eating something dry, whereas mm. if you actually show them rather than tell them, they're going to learn a lot more. Mm, yeah. So with making a documentary, what? how do you write a documentary? Like obviously you can't really prepare for everything that's going to happen or everything you're going to capture in camera. So... Do you have like a, is it a loose script or is it an incredibly detailed script where you need to hit everything off before you can go into the editing room? It's a, it's a really flexible process and there are some things that are highly scripted and some things that you go out with the intention of trying to capture something and then the rushes that you, you have filmed then help to shape the story and unusual things happen. But I mean, like I've worked with really highly scripted things. Like I made a film um, about uh, called Romeo and Juliet, A Monkey's Tale, and literally followed the script of Shakespeare and then spent enough time in the field with monkeys in order to storyboard every single sequence that happens in that story. <laughs> and then there's other times that, you know, you'll go out more loosely and maybe you're trying to capture an event such as, a monsoon storm or a firestorm and you just need to know enough about that environment and actually understand you know the nuances of things that might be happening within that in order to bring it to the audience in a new way so you're not just ticking off the things they've seen before you're wanting to reveal a new layer or a new perspective on something that they can see so you're thinking about those things you're thinking about how do I create drama where something happens and something reacts and then you're thinking about what's the unique perspective that the audience can see this event through. Is it through the predator? Is it through the prey? Is it through the storm, the environment, um, the people around them that are coming in to uh, to help with the situation? So those are the types of things that you start playing with with a documentary. And I mean, there's so many ways to to do it, and that's the joy. It's it's always creative. Mm. So how long would the whole process take from writing from starting to write the script to it's now screening time? How long is that entire process? 
again, always unique. It varies, I'm sure. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, something that's a really blue chip natural history documentary might take two years from shooting it through to, um, you know, because you often have to try to work across more than one season uh, into post-production and then when it goes on air. And the, the two things that are always the unknown is the the time it takes to commission something can be twice as long as it takes to make it. And you never always get what you want up. You have to be working on a swag of different things because you never know what's going to be the thing that eventually tips over and gets commissioned. Um, so you could spend two, three years, four years. I mean, I've got projects I've been working on for five years that still haven't been commissioned just because it's wow. not the zeitgeist at this moment. And then when I eventually go to make them, they might be done in nine months or 12 months. Um, and then the other part of it is you never know when a broadcaster might put it on air. So sometimes you're on air within three weeks, sometimes it's 12 months. Mm. Um, yeah, it's it it's always different. Yeah. Now with the, um, <laughs> hopefully we're coming out of COVID time, do you think maybe five years down the line there's going to be documentaries about how COVID has impacted our wildlife and or how COVID has impacted our lives? Um, there's there's because... already one, actually. There is actually, Oh, really? There's already one. And I'm trying to think of what platform it played on. It was made by the BBC, so it may be BBC plus Netflix. And I can't even remember the title, but it's something like When the Earth Stopped or something. And it actually looked at you know, the wild boars that came down from the forest and started living in the streets and the, oh wow. um, you know, the uptake in the, the harbours of all of the marine mammals that have come in. So, yeah, definitely those, those <laughs> stories will know more because you can often, um, in natural history, you can often react to something quickly as it's happening. But sometimes those stories, because they're based on ecological change, you may not know about them for a couple of years. So a lot of wildlife filmmakers just jump on events as they happen and see if they can film them. But mm. what I like to do is track trends to build deeper stories to understand. And that was the same with the film After the Wildfires. There was a lot of news crews running around after the Black Summer Fires who were going out and filming koalas as they were being rescued. But in order to make something different, the idea that I wanted to work on was what happened in the 12 months after the fires tracking that ecological change as forests were starting to recover and regrow and the animals. And some of the stories were positive and some of them were negative because apart from the fire itself, you have, you know, starvation and um, soil drying out and, and trees not being able to grow and things like that. So there was lots of population change that happened and and that to me was a more interesting story than than just the horrific news cycle images that we saw. Mm, what a great segue. Um, I, I remember when the bushfires happened and there was smog as thick as you could imagine in the Melbourne CBD, even though it was, you know, tens, hundreds of kilometres away from us. Um, what sort of motivated you to make such a important film, but for such a harsh time in our natural history in Australia? Well, it was interesting because I was working with Craig Rewcastle on Big Weather at the time and it was a series that had been in planning for two years and we never, you know, had no idea we were about to stumble into the, the driest year on record in Australia, the worst fires that had ever happened. 21% um, of all of our forests on the East Coast were lost. And 
we were telling that story already and we'd plotted out all the things that we wanted to do in that series, knowing that, you know, we might get some fires, but obviously they were so much more extreme than anticipated. But we we knew at the time, and especially coming from myself as somebody who studied and, and worked as a wildlife biologist, the idea of not giving precedence to the um, ecological story and the wildlife story, I was like criminal. There's no way that I'm not mm. going to do that story. So I just told the ABC, I'm going to start making this, get on board eventually, but I'm making this now um, because we were already out there. We'd done all the work. We were all um, gone through the training and were certified to be on the fire front and had camera people out there shooting for us. And so just being able to extend our production to really focus then, then also on a wildlife film of what was happening during the fires um, was was something that just there was no way I was going to leave that behind with what was, you know, dear to me in, the, in my heart. And what ended up happening was we effectively saw the biggest wildlife extinction event that has happened in modern history happening here in Australia um, mm. over that that summer. And you know, of course we had to film that and tell that story for for ourselves to remember what it meant, what we lost, but also as a, a real harbinger for the changing climate and what we're facing down into the future. Mm. Um, I've got so many questions about this piece. Um, number one, as a wildlife documentary director, are you also in the field? Yeah, yeah. So um, it depends on the projects. Often, you know, I'm, I, I run a slate of shows and so I, I can't be everywhere all of the time, but being in the field is my favourite thing to do and I always try to be there as much as possible. Um, but, you know, there, there, there are times that we have crews working in lots of different places and so it's about a priority of, you know, where do I have to be as well as, you know, being a mum and doing the things that are required. Um, so I, uh, I will be out in the field, but they'll, sometimes there'll be, um, field directors who work for me. Sometimes cinematographers, um, will actually shoot completely on their own, uh, depending on what the, the story is, because it's just a sit and wait and, you know, mm. sit in, uh, in a swamp for three days, four days to get a couple of sequences that, they don't need me, therefore. <laughs> Although I do enjoy it. I even enjoy the swamp and the mosquitoes because it just reminds you. I think the, the the greatest thrill is stepping out away from, you know, the, the office bench and the laptop and just looking and listening and knowing that what you're recording in real time means that you're living in real time. And I just don't feel like there's many opportunities in life that we do that anymore we're such multitasking constantly under pressure creatures and to stop and just listen and look and absorb is such a privilege and that's why I love being in the field Mm, it sounds quite meditative Mm, absolutely yeah yeah um back to the bushfires um I think it was last time I heard it was something like one one and a half billion vertebrates perished in those fires um which is a staggering amount. Uh, look, to be honest, I'm not sure if that number's right. So, if fact it's actually check me, three billion. Right. I hate to tell three you. billion double. There we go. Isn't that terrible? Um, terrible stuff. And like you said, it's definitely a, a cause. Sorry, the result of climate change. Um, 
a lot of people think, you know, fire is a natural part of our landscape and it is. Fire yes. ecology is really, really important. Um, and I think the indigenous people of our country mastered it from, you know, 60,000 plus years ago. But what was the difference between a healthy fire and the fires that occurred on Black Summer? Yeah, look, I think it's really an interesting thing because we, we can talk about the land of droughts and flooding rains and, you know, all of this. This is We do have an extreme climate in Australia that swings through all of these um, wild, tempestuous events. But what we um, understand now about the fire ecology of this, this country is you have to look at intensity and frequency and what we're seeing uh, is an is the number of intense events actually becoming much more frequent. So if you look at um, the east coast of Australia and the number of intense fires that would go through, uh, you know, a forest in a hundred years, um, last century it was maybe two or three. We're now mm-hmm. seeing those intense fires happening every decade. And that just does not allow the, um, the 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 forests to recover. It just doesn't give them the capacity to build resilience, and it um, it it ends up fragmenting and stunting animal populations to allow those recovery periods. So natural disasters have always happened around the world, but what we're seeing with climate change, and especially in Australia, with the drying of the continent, the reduction in the rain, and then the impacts that roll on when you lose forest, the lack of ground cover, the lack of that that landscape to actually um, encourage uh, moisture and lead to rain itself because it's dried out, it's lost its cover, it's just it becomes a perpetuating sort of thing. But it's really it's really important to understand that intensity and that frequency part of fire and how those fire regimes in Australia have shifted. Mm. Now, obviously, I recently watched your Great Barrier Reef, uh, the Next Generation Project, and that touches on, obviously, climate change, but also ocean acidification, rising of uh, water temperature. And everyone knows that a majority of the oxygen that we breathe on this planet is from the ocean now that our land is also you know going down the toilet so to speak with other natural disasters like bushfires do they interact with one another does the bushfires put a really uh, i'm trying to think of a way to phrase this uh does it affect the water negatively and then does the water negatively affect the land? Yeah, it's great. It's a great question, but I think that it all comes down to everything being connected, everything mm. being connected. And, you know, it's um, it's whether the ocean suffered after the bushfires, I mean, you can talk about the immediate effects in terms of the um, all of the ash that fell into the ocean and and the consequences that had. Um, we know that there, there was some, you know, die-off because of that. Um, we know that the the smoke got all the way to New Zealand and had impacts. Um, whether it actually cooled the ocean because of cloud warmings in small patches, I mean, this is the thing. You 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 just nature is just amazing, isn't it? It it has so many um intangible we, things that we don't understand about the way that things interact on short time scales, on long time scales. Um, 
but we do know, you know, once you start pulling a thread, um, as humans, the changes that you create, they they do move through the systems and then it's up to nature to try to balance itself out. Um, and it balances itself out in ways that maybe humans aren't prepared for and, and not, um, you know, not wanting to happen. Um, you know, I, I think that we, we kind of talk about saving the planet and we know very well that the planet will always save itself. It's whether the humans can be saved as well along with it. <laughs> Because um, at the end of the day, you know, we need, we're the ones that need a certain amount of clean air, clean water. We need the chemical balance in our oceans and our atmosphere to support us and our life. Mm. Um, the, yeah. the, the planet has been hostile. It has been the kind of place that hasn't uh, allowed vertebrates to flourish in the past. So, you know, life changes on this planet Um and, you know, we're at the moment the anthropogenic inputs from humans are leading to some changes that are not going to help us to thrive on this planet. Yeah, we're all connected, which is, yeah, it's absolutely insane to think about. <laughs> um, when the ash from wildfires hit the water, what happens? What's the chemical reaction? Yeah, I'd, mad, I'd imagine it goes toxic, just like ash hitting a golf course, you know, it turns toxic after that and you can't really plant anything in the soil. Yeah, I didn't really look at this too much. Um, it was interesting because I, I know all along the, the coast around Malakuta there was so much ashfall and there was all of the um, lorikeets and everything washing up um, along the, the water edge. And, and unfortunately we didn't get down there and I wasn't able to, to look at, at that but I did um, look at some of the soil composition changes that had happened in, in different parts of um, uh, where there was really vicious fires that went through. And, and what was really, it was really disturbing actually, the, the heat in some of the fires went to the point where the soil composition um, not only sterilised, it actually became carcinogenic and that washed oh, wow. off into freshwater systems was like, that wasn't even something I was prepared to go there and look at. But there was yeah. a really big question mark as to what kind of impacts those soils were going to end up having on freshwater um, systems. And, again, we don't have the baseline science in Australia to really understand some of these changes. And every now and then you see a big fish kill or you see species missing from an area where they were once populated and you don't know where it's come from, what's happened how long ago that change that, you know, was actually instigated that you're actually seeing now. And there are so many things that we still need to understand about our country and how the land works. Yeah, it sounds very apocalyptic. Mm. Uh, I mean, you know, something out of Lord of the Rings. Um, so when this was another question that I had from the very beginning, um, how many hours of filming do you rack up on average when you're sitting in that swamp? Uh, for days on end just to get one sequence how many hours worth of filming does it take well I think we're getting faster I, when I started shooting with um, natural history you know maybe the ratio was 100 hours for every hour maybe more um, actually it would have been, wow. it would have been <laughs> more than that definitely would have been more than that um but, you know, when we're shooting on film, 
was much more haphazard, whereas now with digital systems, you can do things quicker, they're cheaper, you can have multiple cameras on things, you can even use camera traps. So you can even use caches on cameras where if you've missed the moment that the the bird takes flight, you can actually set up a pre-roll. So the camera is actually being recording in the background. So it actually, you can then go back in its memory and pick up those shots, even if you didn't button on. I mean, Technology has changed things dramatically, but I mean, it is true, hundreds and hundreds of hours for every hour that we shoot. Um, but at the same time, the bigger the budget, the more you'll shoot. And sometimes um, because I haven't always operated where, you know, I'm, I, I've made films for the BBC, but I've never had their kind of budgets. And so you have to make smart decisions. You go where you know you're going to get a story. Um, you learn, you put your effort into pre-production so you know that you're in the right place so that you're not wasting time. Um, You're working in ways that really make sure that you don't have to spend 10 days for one sequence. Hmm. Shooting on film sounds very annoying for a documentary. (laughs) Yeah, it's. I mean, like it's a beautiful medium to look at it and it lasts the, the, the test of times, but yeah, it, it's not the most spontaneous way of working. Yeah. Especially when you need to change a role and. Mm. I, did, I did that all the way up the Himalayas, um, carrying, you know, all of the reels on yaks to the top, having to change um, cartridges. Yeah. At, at 5,000 meters. Yeah. <laughs> Damn. How, how is the Himalayas? Is it, is it changing as much as the Great Barrier Reef is? I mean, color-wise for the Great Barrier Reef, it's it's really sad and drastic and significant. But is the Himalayas facing some similar effect, or do you I, think I don't think you can find many places on Earth that haven't changed over the period of yeah. time that I've been working for twenty-five years of shooting. Um, I mean, even just the footprint of development has just changed so dramatically. You know, we. Places that used to be remote valleys now have internet cafes and and you know hotels and people uh, you know cars driving into them and everything things and th- things you know the the rate of human development has has taken people into areas that you used to be able to travel to as wilderness and I think that that's a challenge as well trying to 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 find those places but one of the things I think is has been important is really talking about the world as a place that we do live and not talking about nature as being separate and saying I think there was a real tendency in the past, especially with natural history documentaries that David Attenborough would narrate, that it's almost like nature is in this Eden that's far away from everybody else. And I think that, you know, a lot of the films that that I've been involved in have tried to look at how people live and work and move through those places and that we're still nature is is us and we're all around it mm. and we're included in it and our impact is included in it as well and it's not seen as something that exists as in a separate bubble because it it absolutely does not yeah we're a part of the network mm. yeah. yeah are there any environments that you haven't got the chance to film in but you're pretty keen to get to maybe post covid <laughs> yeah um i'd love to go to the arctic i've never been there um yeah yeah. I'd love to see the northern lights and uh get a chance to be in polar bear land that would be amazing 
I've, yeah. I've had a lot of um, work in Africa and I love, I absolutely love it there. It is extraordinary. I've told films there through the perspective of um, the Maasai and Samburu people because that was the other thing I just felt like, you know, the the local people who live in these areas, they've got such a unique way of telling stories and, and yeah. uh, you know, I wanted to give them voices in their own stories, um, which we've done here in Australia too, working with Indigenous Australians to to talk about nature in a in a perspective that's not always um you know scientific it's cultural it's it's learned mm. it's lived it's it's uh it's known from the soul um so that's been something I, i've loved to be able to do in my storytelling yeah for sure um those uh, is it the maasai mm-hmm. is that yeah they are awesome people they're they're the just for those who who are listening and, and not sure what we're talking about. Uh, those people are the insane people that are now probably one of the biggest ambassadors for African lions and uh, growing up or well, hundreds and hundreds of years ago, even thousands, I should say, um, their sort of trial for masculinity was to one-on-one try and hunt and kill a lion and now they're their biggest ambassadors. So it's a really cool... Um, part of the world and and some really cool people as well um how is it meeting them do do they just like reek of awesomeness (laughs) (laughs) that's such a good question um yeah definitely I would I'd say definitely I had I had way too much fun um running around Africa uh making some films with Maasai people and the first time that um I, I did a casting. I um, sent out the Bush Telegram and basically said through a translator, could uh, anyone who's interested in, in you know, being part of a natural history show, I'm looking for um, Maasai who have knowledge, please come and meet under this tree tomorrow at 10 o'clock. And, um, and so my, my translator sent that message to somebody and the next morning I turned up and there was 200 people underneath the tree. <laughs> and it was seriously the best day of my life. I laughed and laughed and laughed and had so much fun and I wasn't even speaking, uh, you know, Ma, which is their language. I, you know, we we had to do it all via a translator, but, oh, my gosh, so much fun. Was that in Kenya? Mm, Kenya, Tanzania, yeah. But it was just, you know, meeting people who had, you know, missing an eye or had a, an arm that had been bit off by a leopard and this, just this, awesome sense of humor and humanity and openness and yeah it was very yeah. fun that's awesome um how is kenya because like i said before uh, i've been to south africa but i, I feel like kenya is uh, a totally different place oh yeah i think africa's you know we, we talk about africa like it's a country it's not it's a continent there's so many parts you know like uh, north africa is awesome central africa and the the jungles um, I mean, I love the Sahara. I love the more culture, the Arab culture. And then in East Africa, you know, you've got the cradle of humanity. Or so they say. I mean, like even that's up for contention where where humans are said to have evolved. That's a, a really interesting question. Um, they're, they're talking about different theories now. But um, just in terms of that Great Rift Valley that um, travels through the middle of Africa and all the way up into um Eritrea and oh amazing I love Ethiopia too you know it's just like why are we talking about traveling Alex we can't do it <laughs> I'm sorry I'm sorry I'm sorry hopefully soon I'm so sorry um 
uh, on a different note, um, what what are the other theories with uh, the cradle of humanity? Because I, I was unaware that there were any other theories of where humans originated from. Oh, there's some really interesting work coming out of China and Asia, actually. They're talking about like a, you know, a, is there is there something there that predated some, some specimens of hominoid species to um, Asia where they're like, so what happened here? Did is there more than one evolutionary um, tree? Did they evolve? Um, you know the the number of different human species that coexisted together and potentially interbred, and um, you know it's quite extraordinary. I don't think that uh, what we think about how humans evolved is going to stay uh, stagnant for long. I think that it's constantly evolving. The more work that we do, I think that there's mm. you know these these fields of science grow up. Um, based on where the efforts put into them and where Western science focuses. And I think that the more we collaborate with people from different cultures in the East and we look at those stories there and we bring together our science, I think that we're going to be finding out more and more new things. Mm, yeah. Um, speaking of, of new things, with your uh, After the Wildfires project, you mentioned that the the film itself is tracking 12 months after uh, the event would you go back maybe five years down the line and track the next five years worth of records I think it's really interesting and that's that's the benefit of you know if you have a long career and I mean even one of the the ways that we were able to to make after the wildfires was we'd already made a series called Magical Land of Oz where we'd filmed in a lot of the places that burnt and so we had that that those images and that almost like that data of what a place looked like before the fires then immediately after and then 12 months after so you know if it, it, it those are things that are absolutely really fascinating you have to capture the imagination of um the people who are paying for the films that's the challenge and often they don't have those the sense of long the longitudinal point of view of things they just want the next bright shiny thing and what are you going to do that's different but um, definitely working at Northern Pictures where I do and having now quite a long body of work and being able to track some of those changes um, has been, you know, helped me think about the way we tell stories as well. Yeah. So um, this film, by the way, I'm pretty sure it's going to be on ABC iView, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. So it, yeah. it actually did screen in December um, on the ABC and it's available on iView. And we also made it for um, Love Nature and CBC in Canada. So David Suzuki ended up narrating it um, in Canada. Um, yeah, so and it just won uh, the best conservation film at Jackson Hole Wild, which was really great because we were up against a David Attenborough film. And so that was pretty amazing. Cool. What a badge. What a badge you wanted to get. Um, what's it like working in tandem with the ABC? Because obviously it's a you know, national known household channel. Everyone knows what the ABC is here in Australia. What's it like working with them? Well, you know, the, the ABC is great because they are the only network in Australia that prioritises science and natural history. And, you know, when you have every other network just wanting to put on cooking and singing. Um, you know, yeah, reality yeah. shows or something and you know, like this that. I'm, I'm not going to ditch, you know, reality shows. Like they have their place. That's fine. But, 
for you know, sure, like it's, for sure. there is, um, you know, I do like the fact that the ABC is prepared to also make other genres because, you know, they're the things that actually stay with us as well, that, that documentaries show us what our environment is like and what our um, wildlife is and, um, you know, looks at, that, at scientific progress and things like that. So having the ABC committed to those genres, I think, is, you know, fabulous. Now, what's it like... Um bit of uh, earlier work from you in 2017, your film Blue. Uh, I think it won, what, 16, 17 awards or something like that. It's incredible. Um, I remember watching it when I was doing some marine studies at uni. Um, How did that affect your career? Because surely like 16 awards is not a, (laughs) it's not a little number. Um, (laughs) Was it 16 awards? Am I getting that number right? Oh, I don't know how many. I haven't counted, but it, yeah, people I haven't really... counted. What a flex! <laughs> well, no, because I mean, like it's it keeps you know the film that film keeps on giving. You know, like it did so, something extraordinary, and it wasn't so much that it won awards. It was just so for me being able to work in a theatrical space was great because often when you make something on television, it's um, becomes like the little darling of that network for that five minutes, and they promote it and then it goes away. Whereas a theatrical piece tends to have a really long tail. It grows slowly, but people are still talking about it. And, like, it, that film is still playing in cinemas around the world now. Like, it's, I've, I've had to do a whole lot of welcomes to um, a festival where it's playing in the Azores in Portuguese. It's in <laughs> Brazil. It's in Estonia. Like, that's amazing because um, that has given a sort of a universal feel to the film. And I think it's really interesting as a filmmaker to to make things for different people um because it 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 makes you better but it also gives you a variety as well of ways to speak to audiences so yeah the fact that it was a a theatrical film um where nobody told me what to do and how to make it <laughs> which is uh the other struggle that always happens when you're making something for a network you basically stop working from your gut because you, you have to fit what their slot is and who their audience is and there's lots of rules. That's incredible. Whereas that, that film was just pure gut. Yeah, incredible. So when a film of yours wins a bunch of awards, besides recognition, does it do anything for the film? Do they give you, you know, a donation for the next film or anything like that? No, I mean it's. I think it's it's like life in that, in some ways, you you have to engage in in you know making sure that people understand what your work is doing so that you keep growing a um, an opportunity to be able to get new things commissioned because that's the biggest struggle. Nothing ever comes easy, and you know I constantly get rejected with my ideas. It doesn't matter if I've been successful with one film you know I'm still knocking on the door with hundreds of other people who are trying to get things done and so you know may I won't say that I'm not privileged because of um, my background in having made um, and have have the experience I have I I certainly know I'm not necessarily standing um, with first timers there because people know at least that you know if I'm pitching something it's something that will be delivered on time on schedule on budget and pretty good hopefully um but it doesn't mean it's a a, you know like a pass Mm. all the way in 
you know, you still got to fight for those spots and and even just fighting for the genre. I mean, you know, I often go and pitch something and I'm told, oh, we've already got a natural history project for this year and that's it. And I'm like, what, just one? That's yeah. it? Um, and even films. I mean, when Blue was released, uh, we were told by the cinemas, oh, there's an Al Gore um, Inconvenient Truth 2 is coming out this year, so you're going to have to hold off eight months to release this film because we don't want to have it in the same year that Al Gore's film's coming out. Mm. Um, so, you know, there's not a lot of space, so it's always competitive. And so anything that you win, you, you know, hopefully sets you up so that people actually see that, there's value to your work beyond audiences. It's also quality and recognition amongst your peers and and that you can compete with people who are from foreign um, entities. Like we're always, you know, invisible against the BBC. Mm. And so to be able to win in a, a festival, like the biggest wildlife festival in the world is Jackson. And so to yeah. win against an Abra film, it's the first time in 20 years I've won that festival. I entered it the first time 21 years ago. So to win it finally after 20 years, I'm like, yeah. Yeah, over the BBC, 100%. <laughs> yeah, personal best, that one. That that felt good. It, it doesn't really make sense, like just hearing you say it, it, it doesn't make sense how you're competing against other nature docos when in the meantime there's – what 10 superhero films that come out every year uh so not only are you competing against things within your genre but also an oversaturation of other genres that kind of don't really mean anything look i'm a big iron man fan i love batman it's all cool but even i know that climate change is the biggest problem facing our planet ever um we should devote more time, more resources to learning about these huge human-caused and human-affected problems. I think it's also, you know, like it's the audience has to be hungry for it because people do look at ratings and people do look at um, the reaction. And so, you know, that's to encourage everybody to engage in this kind of programming as well. Sometimes I think it's easier to switch off and it feels all scary and so they're, oh, I'm not going to watch something about, you know, something depressing or whatever. But, you know, like I I always in my films try to take something that might be challenging and make it emotional and engaging in a way that makes you feel like you want to do something and maybe that makes you angry, maybe that makes you, um, you know, feel empowered, uh, maybe that makes you you know, decide to create change in your own community or whatever it might be. Um, and so if the audience isn't watching it, you can't really blame the commissioning editors and the people making decisions if everybody's just running away to reality or soap land or Marvel land. Um, so it's really also the challenge is for filmmakers to make films that are interesting enough that people want to watch. Mm. Um, that are new perspectives and that they don't feel like hard work. Mm. I think you do that very well. You, you encourage emotion and a, a desire to change um, the world with your project. So I, I think you do that really, really well. Um, I remember studying yeah, climate change-based subjects at uni. And it was just so depressing every time you walk out. You're like, well, shit. <laughs> it sucks you know the world's in the pocket of the coke brothers doing fossil fuels or whatever there's nothing i can do i'm just one person but after watching a piece 
or a project from you, it's definitely the opposite. It's very encouraging. Oh, I love that. I love you said that, Alex, because that's that's what you know. That was a big theme, especially in blue, was everybody can make a difference. So you may be one person, but um, one person can make a difference. Yeah. Um, it all starts with one person. We, you know, like we we can only be one person, and by being the best person we can be, who is making decisions and changes and and and, and engaging in this stuff and you know, then we can encourage others around us. And then it, that from that, you see the snowball. But if you only think it doesn't matter because I'm only one person, then what are you doing with your life? Mm, yeah, it's a pretty sad way to live, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. If you say that about everything. Um, okay, awesome. Last question. Have you had in your travels, and I know there's been a lot <laughs> by now, in your travels, has there been any near misses uh, with wildlife? Mm. Actually, it was funny because I was just watching with my son um, a show I made in Africa with with the Maasai, and um, we were just we were just looking at it yesterday. Yesterday was the weekend, wasn't it? Yep. And um, and it was yeah, it was it was uh, we there was a I was just watching it going, what were we thinking? <laughs> I mean, honestly, these days, the amount of um, occupational health and safety and risk assessments you've got to do before you even, you know, jump in the water with a scuba tank on or something, it just is days of work. <laughs> and, um, and yeah, in this film, you know, these massive warriors, they're like lying on the edge of the, the Mara, Mara River with, um, you know, these massive Nile crocodiles <laughs> within... 30 centimetres of them ready to lunge. And I'm just like, what was I doing? I mean, they were doing it and I had to kind of play along because they said they knew what they were doing. And likewise, they they ended up chasing a pack of lions off a kill and taking over the, the feed and eating it themselves. So, I mean, it was crazy. It was crazy. I mean, I, I, I was not in any danger. The, I think the only thing that in that particular shoot that went kind of crazy was that there was this massive swarm of killer bees that came over the horizon and it just sounded like a fighter jet was about to attack us and there wow. was this big cloud and we all had to run for cars and 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 slam doors and, you know, like that was crazy. But um, and I think I had a near miss last time I was filming the coral spawning. I had apparently I had a shark come up right behind me um, who made a fish jump right into my head as it was um, hunting it and that was about midnight and we were out in the middle of nowhere like several kilometres from a pontoon and I was told to start swimming. (laughs) (laughs) So you got slapped by a fish. I I got slapped by a fish that was being hunted by a very, very large shark apparently. But um, I was with people who made me feel safe. I try to always be with people who make me feel safe. Yeah. And I have to say there's something about being with a camera that that makes you feel a little bit more invincible, maybe dangerously so. I've heard it's like a shield. A mental shield too. And, yes, you can use them to kind of put you put yourself out of harm's way. I definitely, definitely um, always look at my underwater cinematographer with his massive camera thinking, well, you're all right. Yeah. <laughs> You've got something between you and your head. And I'm the one who's spotting for the great white shark who's going to come and, you know, get me before it gets him, isn't it? But so far, I don't know. I don't know. I was told when I was 10 years old that I wouldn't live a long life 
that I probably wouldn't make it to 30 by a fortune teller. Oh. Um, can you imagine telling a 10-year-old child this? But no. anyway, they, <laughs> they read my palm and they said, you're not going to live until, you know, like beyond 30. You know, you're going to have this good life, but it's going to be short. And I don't know, I kind of took that with me and just went, okay, well, just let's go make the most of it because you just never know when your number's up. And uh, I think that that has potentially uh, driven a lot of the decisions I've made in my life. And I've really truly made it past 30, so I'm fine. 32? Almost a bit more than that too, yeah. <laughs> That's terrific. That's uh, There's some pretty sick. I've never heard of a bee attack before. Mm. And yet, thinking about it, I don't want to ever see one. <laughs> I mean, no, that, that that wasn't going to be pretty. Yeah, it sounds like a horror film, killer bees. Um, mm. <laughs> that's awesome. So, do you have um, any social media where people can follow you? I tried to find you on Insta, but are you on Instagram? Oh, look, I I'm not personally. I'm not a really social media person, but our projects are up there, and I sometimes um, post on uh, Blue the film. Mm-hmm. So Blue the film is Blue is the feature that I just talked about. We've been going since, since 2017. It was that film was launched, and we still post there because um, that film, you know, was really linked into a lot of conservationist projects and. Um, you know, talking about the oceans and and trying to celebrate good news around the oceans. And so, um, and then Northern Pictures as well. So Northern Pictures has has a website and a Instagram and Facebook and, and that. And we, um, we've still got natural history projects coming along. I was supposed to be going and diving with sharks later this week, but it looks like the weather's going to rain us out. So Maybe next week. We'll see. Hey, you got that. You're out of lockdown now. So, uh, yeah. Out of lockdown. That's yeah. it. <laughs> awesome. Thanks, guys. Hope you enjoyed it. Thank you, Karina. Thanks, Alex. Hold up. 